We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. We are beginning a very short winter series that goes for two weeks. It kind of fills a gap, in one sense, in, uh, in the schedule between two terms, but it's perfectly timed as a winter series. Uh, we've titled it, um, Are You Cold?, uh, which is perfectly, perfectly apt, isn't it? Uh, except when you come in here, it's kind of a little too hot, I think, especially if you're sitting over there, right? Uh, and so that's a question. If you were to take the, the thermostat on yourself at the moment, I'm not really talking physically, I'm actually talking spiritually. If you were to take a thermometer to your faith, are you feeling the cold? Are you feeling too hot, if that were possible? Uh, Perhaps somewhere in between. Um, For two weeks, we're going to think about that idea of our temperature. Um, And today's sermon uh, is focused on a particular temperature. In fact, today's uh, sermon is brought to you by the temperature lukewarm. Uh, It's brought to you by the colour beige, even though I'm dressed in black, uh, or off-white, or the ivory. It's just... uh, Well, it's it's also brought to you by the letter M, for kind of just just in the middle a bit. And it's brought to you by the sound effect, meh. Um, And it's having us think about that idea of our temperature. Um, As I was thinking about it this week, uh, a lyric kept coming to my mind which was from a song that Keith Green wrote, probably in the early 70s, I suspect. And uh, and the lyric is uh, is a prayer where he asks that God might kindle a fire in him. It goes like this. It says, O Lord, please light the fire that once burnt bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that's fueled with holy fear. Such a great prayer, isn't it? It comes, obviously, from a heart that's uh, cooled, salt that's lost its saltiness, light that's now hidden under a bushel, faith that's drifted off its anchor, a heart that's hardening. And I wonder if you can sympathise with Keith Green as he writes a lyric like that, where you've kind of lost the vibrancy, it's cooled off a bit, I wonder if you've been there, or if you're on your way there, or if you arrived there a long time ago. I went looking for that song, and, um, and I found it quite easily. Um, but then I found, to my surprise, a live recording of that song that was recorded uh, the week that he wrote it. So he writes it on a Monday night, and he plays it live later that week, and someone recorded it. And I want you to listen to his introduction, and hopefully this will work. 
Sunday night this week. About midnight, I wrote a letter to the Lord. I didn't know where to mail it, so I put it in my Bible. And I asked him, Lord, you got to do something about my heart. You know, a lot of time's gone by since I met you. And it's starting to harden up. You know, it's just kind of natural. I want to have baby skin, Lord. I want to have skin like a baby on my heart. It's starting to get old and, and wrinkled and calloused. It's not because anything I'm doing. It's because of a lot of things I'm not doing. And I stayed up till about two in the morning writing this song. And if you wanted to hear the song, well, bad luck. But it's an interesting introduction, isn't it? It's been a long time since we met, and uh, my heart's got a little hard. If you couldn't quite hear it, he says, I want to have baby skin, which sounds creepy until you think about what he's actually asking for. He wants to have soft, supple skin that surrounds his heart because it's gone old and wrinkled and calloused. And so he prays, writes a letter off to God asking that he might um, do something about his heart. A couple of weeks ago, um, I heard almost exactly the same words from a friend who felt that way in their faith. And then I had another conversation that was all about the imperceptible drift over years that had taken this person further away from the vibrant faith that they can vaguely remember once upon a time. But it's not like it was. It's sad, isn't it, when you hear that? But, but maybe it's not just that it's sad, it's that it resonates with us. That we can remember times of great excitement, vibrancy. The, you hear of the camp this week and the girls that have come back. And I can imagine the excitement. You think, well, they'll get over it. It's just, just give them a bit of time, right? Just let them settle down a little. But what a terrible thought. Like, well, where did it go and why did it kind of drift off and... And this being a Christian, you know, I had such high expectations. I got off to such an energetic start, but I'm tired. I'm still waiting on a long list of unanswered prayers. Or, you know, this following Christ thing, I've got to tell you nowadays, I'm just a little bit embarrassed. I'm a bit ostracized and and I'm doubting and I'm conflicted and, and I'm disappointed with God. I'm cooling off. And I wonder if any of those thoughts kind of rendezvous with where our heart is at. When you turn to the church that receives the letter that uh, is written and entitled the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, you realise that they were in a similar kind of place when they get a sermon preached to them, which is really what the book of Hebrews is. Already by chapter 2, the very beginning of chapter 2, they get a a, a warning. Uh, After being reminded in chapter 1 about who it is that they've come to trust in, this one who is uh, Christ, the, the Lord, the exact representation of God in human flesh. Uh, the, the one through whom the, uh, God made the universe. Uh, the one who is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. The one who sustains all things by his powerful word. And the one who has brought purification for sins. 
and the one who has sat down at the right hand of the Father, and the one who is superior to every created being, even angels, far superior to them all. So they're told all of that, and then by chapter 2 and verse 1, they receive a warning that they're not to drift off, they're not to cool down. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. A warning about drifting. That little word that gets used for drifting picks up the obvious image in our mind of the the boat that's been uh, commissioned to arrive at a certain place, a certain port, but just the trade winds or a lack of attention or whatever it would be, it's missed its landing point. It's, It's drifted off course. But it's not only used in that sense of that kind of nautical idea of drifting off an anchor or not arriving right. The same words used to describe uh, a ring that slipped off a finger. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. Um, my fingers have got too fat, it doesn't happen anymore. But, uh, but, I, but I, I, I remember when Heidi lost a ring at one stage where she had no recollection of where she lost it or when she lost it. Just slipped off one day. And then she looked down and she was like, well, it was there, was it there this morning or yesterday? And I just can't quite remember when I last saw it and where it went. But the thing that was quite precious has been lost somewhere, sometime. But it also describes not just the boat that drifts or a ring that slips off the finger, but water that's drained out of a jar. There's a crack that you didn't know was there and you filled it up only to come back and it was emptied out. A few years ago when we, um, we renovated this room, we had to lift the floor and there's a baptistry, as some of you will know, in the stage here. And we lifted and elevated the stage as well and we tiled it and got it all done and we filled it up for the first time that we were going to do baptisms and the first baptism was Jen Wingham and I remember uh, she, uh, we filled it up to the top, we f- closed the lid and at the time in the service where we were going to do the baptisms we lifted the lid and what we discovered that they hadn't waterproofed it properly and all of the water had just leaked out to the level of the old stage height and so it was only about waist high. I'd told Jen uh, the day or so before that I'd remember hearing this bloke who uh, was baptising for the first time and he wanted to make sure he did the right job, but they didn't have a baptismal pool. They had a, a baby's pool that they filled up and he'd read hard about what he was supposed to do and he knew that it was by full immersion and he had to be entirely covered. And this lady, who was the first lady to be baptised, uh, arrived and she had this enormous hairdo that was all done up with hairspray. And so they go in to baptise, but he can't get the thing to sink and so the, the hair to sink, I mean. And so he's pushing this lady down and splashing water over the top she, and she's down for ages until he can make sure he's got her entirely wet. And then all of a sudden she's, she emerges out and she screams, what are you doing? Which is not the thing you want to hear at a baptismal service. And I told Jen that and I said, that's not going to be the problem, you know. But then we're standing in water that's only about knee deep. And I'm trying to push Jen under the water and it, it had, we'd closed the lid, we'd filled it up, but it just, it had just leaked away. See, whether it's the boat that drifts off course, the ring that slipped sometime, somewhere, and who remembers when, or the jar with the crack, and the the water level was full to the brim, but it's just imperceptibly got less and less. Raymond Brown, who writes a commentary on the book of Hebrews, he says, um, similarly, we can allow these great truths to be lost. However majestic their presentation is in Scripture, or perfect their revelation in Christ, unless we give ourselves to them, we too can drift along, carried by an alien current into dangerous waters, 
or lose something infinitely precious. Just carried along by alien currents, lose something infinitely precious and not even realise perhaps that it's slipped off, that it's drained away. Are you cold? Have you cooled off? Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1 brings you the imperative command, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard. When you think about that church that gets this letter and you know of the persecutions, we know of the struggles that they've had as this first century church, it's a little bit of a shock that when these believers are being addressed about their drift, uh, the coolness of their faith, that the issue is taken up with them. It's, um, it's not that they are consoled by being told that, you know, they're, they're right to kind of wane a little. It's fair enough that you feel this way. The road has been tough. The persecution is hammering away. The, the truths are humiliating or the... Uh, the idea is that, uh, that, that God hasn't come through for you. And uh, therefore, you know, so you feel this way, well, fair enough. It's, it's a hard, long road. The cross is heavy, the burden great. But that's not what the writer does at all. In fact, instead, it's quite the reverse. It's, uh, it's not that they are disappointed with God, it's that God is disappointed with, with them. The issue is with them and we discover straight up that it's a hearing problem that they've got. Notice verse 1. We must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. They have heard of this incredible thing that God has done that's brought about their purification from sin. And the one that they follow has paid their debt and now reigns seated at the right hand of God. They've, they've come to know Christ the radiance of God's glory, and yet it's kind of dulled off a little. They've drifted away from it. Their hearing has become calloused and hard of heart. And the warning comes to them to say, do not drift away. And then then they're told the, the weight of what it is they've received. They're reminded that there's a God who's spoken in the past. He's brought messages, and as he's brought those messages, they've come with commands and expectations from God. For if the message that was spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received, it's just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? If all that God had said in the past was binding through other messages, when he sends his son to die and bring about this salvation, if you were to ignore that, what other hope do you have? And if you doubt whether or not that took place, this salvation, halfway through verse 3, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Jesus proclaimed this. God, in fact, spoke out his word and achieved this. And then it was confirmed to us by those who saw it. We were ear witnesses of the eyewitnesses. And we're now writing to you and telling you. But God also, verse 4, testifies to it by signs and wonders and various miracles. Remember what Jesus did and how he lived all attesting to the one who has brought about this great salvation. Are you ignoring that? Have you got bland to that? Is that just beige news for you? And not only that, he gifted his spirit within you that testifies about that. Meh. 
Oh, yes, I was once very excited of that. But not so much anymore. Not as bright, not as refreshed as I once was. And there's something tragically sad. Something wonderful that the warning comes in the book of Hebrews, though, isn't it? That God doesn't just leave us to drift off aimlessly in this sea of self-absorption. But he's actually the one who brings a warning to us to say, pay careful attention. Take the temperature. Look at the bearings of the compass. Where is your heart? Well, when you hear that, you kind of think, well, that does sound quite serious. But still, it's hard to be enthusiastic all the time. Is it really such a problem that my heart is not quite as vibrant as it once was? Are we really to keep up the enthusiasm that we once had? Because in the middle, it's pretty comfortable, isn't it? I mean, the, the place of being moderate is pretty, pretty nice, um, Good things happen in the middle, don't they? Uh, to be in the middle and to be moderate, that's a vote winner. And, and at the extremes, that's really where you get yourself into trouble. It's much easier just to kind of coast, wane a little. Well, if you thought that the issue wasn't too serious, then it'd be worth taking stock and listening in to see what Jesus thinks about those of his followers who just cool off to the things of God, who drift along. The clearest place you hear that is in the letter that Jesus writes to his church in the book of Revelation. He writes a letter, it goes to seven churches, probably an image of the, uh, the, the total church, but it's also addressed to seven specific churches in Asia Minor. And the seventh of those letters comes to a city of Laodicea, you find it in Revelation chapter 3, and it starts at verse 14. And in it, Jesus writes a letter that brings his thought as to the temperature of these believers. And it was an enormous wake-up call to them, and I think it is to us as well. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14 starts and says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And there you have it. The image of the one that's cooled off, the insipid faith. And when you discover Jesus' attitude towards that, you see that he finds it to be unpalatable. As unpalatable as slugging down a litre of milk that went off last month that you can't keep down, and not just that you spit out casually, but that you spew from your mouth. It's the strong, expulsive word of to vomit. And that's what he says of these followers of his that have cooled off, neither hot nor cold. And instinctively, his response is to spit it out. 
that's a tough call, isn't it? If we thought it didn't matter, if we thought this kind of waning faith, this kind of cooling off to the things of God wasn't serious, then we need to hear the word that comes to the church in Laodicea. Because in many ways, the church in Sydney and even in our own hearts, we can reflect very much an attitude of Laodicea. Perhaps as you start that, you're thinking, well, who is it that's bringing this assessment? Who's taking the temperature? And as John records this letter, we're not meant to miss the one who's writing it. You notice that it was referred to as that these are the words of the Amen. Amen is the transliteration of the Hebrew word that means that something is true. It's the the word that means firm or faithful. And he's saying these are the words that are firm. These are the true words. But it's also picking up an image Uh, that you read in the book of Isaiah that's attributed to God himself as the Amen, the, the true truth. And now Jesus is writing saying, these are the words of God to you. The Amen is saying this, and he is the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. If you if you don't think he's got the credentials to be able to make the assessment, well then you're wrong. If you've made your own assessment as to where your faith and temperature is at, it won't nearly be as accurate as this one who is the Amen, the ruler over God's creation. And when he looks upon the church in Laodicea, he doesn't see what everyone else sees. He sees their deeds and that in that, he sees these lives lived out that are neither cold nor hot. And his desire is that they would be one or the other, but not in between. It's a powerful thought. They need to hear the one who's speaking to them, the one who has the power and the reliability to be able to make their assessment, the assessment, but also to enact the threat that he brings of expelling them. He says to them, because you are lukewarm, verse 16, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. They are half-hearted in their relation to him. Little fervour, no warmth, no zeal. Of course, don't think that they're unbelievers who have rejected Jesus and make no pretense at faith. Um, They're just in the middle. And whereas the other letters that get sent to the other six churches receive some level of commendation, there's things that they are doing well and things that they are to be encouraged by. This church receives no encouragement. They are in the middle. Christ has a a moderate influence in their lives. Someday it's meh. They're influenced by Jesus a bit, but they sure don't get too overboard and they don't get very excited about him. It's meh. It's all got a little bit beige. And Jesus' threat to the lukewarm church is that he will spew them out of his mouth. Christ's putting up the the cup to his lips and he's hoping to taste something pleasant. He's hoped to receive something that's therapeutic or something that's, that's, that's invigorated and then spits it on the ground. And surely that image of spitting people out of his mouth means that he's found them to be unacceptable and rejects. It's serious, isn't it? But, but actually we need to hear it as the Laodicean church would have heard it because they're hearing something broader too in all of this. 
One of the things that's interesting about Laodicea, where it sits just uh, geographically, it was in that kind of perfect temperate zone. It wasn't too high up that it got too cold and too hot. It wasn't too low down. That it, it, just, it was just in that Goldilocks climate where it was, you know, perfect one day and paradise the next. I've got that around the, way, the wrong way. But that whole idea, it's not too hot, not too cold. No. Pleasant. It's not, not nice to name places, but I always think that's Port Macquarie, isn't it, in New South Wales. It's just all year round. It's pleasant. It's just lovely. It's not too hot, not too cold. And, and Laodicea had that reputation. Not only did it have that reputation, um, it didn't have its own water supply. It's actually one of the biggest faults to the place of Laodicea. The way they got their water, uh, a lot of it came from Herapolis, which is about 10 kilometres away. Herapolis was famous because it did have water. In fact, it had hot water. It had a hot spring, famous for its uh, bathing and for its therapeutic capacities. And there was an aqueduct that would run this water through to... Laodicea. Uh, in the other direction, if you travelled um, several more kilometres, you get to Colossae, and Colossae is famous not for hot water, it's actually famous for, for refreshing springs, cold water. The hot water that made its way from Herapolis to Laodicea, by the time it got there, it wasn't hot anymore, it was, it was just tepid. And if you wanted to trudge the water from Colossae back to Laodicea, it was never cool like it was in Colossae when it got to you, it was, it was just lukewarm and kind of unpleasant, really, especially when you're expecting something hot or something refreshing that's cold. It was just, yeah, it's just in the middle. You travel the distance. You come to enjoy something that might invigorate you, something that might replenish you, and yet you find something you'd rather just spit out of your mouth. And Jesus says, you know how you feel about your water? That's how I feel like towards you. When you think about what created that condition, you realise that part of the answer is compromise. You want to make something lukewarm. It's the hot that's cooled off. It's mixed up. It's the cold that's infused with the hot. It's just a, it's just a, it's a lot like the climate around it. It's just a lot like the society and the world around it. And Jesus is saying to that church, faith that saves is not lukewarm. It's distinctly different from its society around it. It's not half-hearted. And so Jesus warns Laodicea. And by extension, every other church and every other follower of him, that if you don't repent, as verse 19 says, then the cooled superficiality of your faith will be your downfall to be spewed out from the mouth. In verse 17, Jesus tells us part of the lukewarmness of the Laodicean church is their ignorance of their true spiritual condition and the fact that they're satisfied with the way that things are. He says, listen, you take your temperature and you say, verse 17, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. It sounds so much like the temperature of our day. I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. It's worth noting that the, the you, when Jesus brings that assessment, that you say is, is a present continuous. You, you keep on saying. You're still saying. Even after you've come to this understanding of who Christ is, you are saying that you are rich and you've acquired wealth and you don't need a thing. 
You're still saying, I'm fine, I don't need God. Why do you have such confidence? And the Laodiceans will say, well, why wouldn't we? We've got the money. We've got the wealth and the security that comes with that. It's locked in the bank. I don't need to ask God for, well, anything. Why ask God for my daily bread when I can just buy it myself? The essence of lukewarmness is the statement, I need nothing. And I can do well enough without Jesus. Oh, I got very excited once when uh, I went forward to a meeting at a camp when I heard a, but uh, I can take care of things myself. My strength is at the end of my own arms. Lukewarm spirituality is self-satisfied and self-providing. And if their self-assessment is, I'm sweet and it's all good, the one who is the amen, the one who is the faithful and true witness says, you think? Verse 17, as it continues, you don't realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. That's the temperature. You, you think that you're safe and everything's fine, but you're just insipid. It's just lukewarm and, and you're actually, you're wretched. Wretched. I mean, we worship. We'll worship anything. We're, we're devoted. And we give and we serve and we... And you say that we're pitiful. Well, no one looks at Laodicea and thinks it's pitiful. We've got the Goldilocks climate. Apart from the drinking water, anyone would want to live in Laodicea. We're in the middle of the trade routes. We've got this great banking system that's very secure. And you say that we're poor. Well, we're not poor. In fact, we're one of the wealthiest cities around. Laodicea was famous because in AD 17, there was an earthquake flattened the town and they required the assistance of Rome to rebuild. But then in AD 60, there was another earthquake flattened the town again. On that, at that occasion... Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes and says, Laodicea, without any relief from us, recovered itself by its own resources. Well, that's impressive, isn't it? You imagine today if there's an earthquake and the, the local township just says to the government, look, don't worry about sending any supplies. We can do it ourselves. We're just going to rebuild. We can finance it ourselves. That, that whole uh, relief funding that you've, uh, that you've earmarked for us, we don't need it. Th- that's Laodicea. They're wealthy, we're not poor, and you call us blind. Don't you know that Laodicea is famous for its ophthalmology? People travel to be schooled in it. We have this eye salve that you can put on your eyes that will fix up all kinds of different eye irritations and problems. You say we're blind, we give sight to people. And you say we're naked, don't you know about the luxurious black wool of Laodicean lambs? I mean, it's so popular that the Roman centurions are kitted out in it. We have textile orders from Rome. And you say we're naked, blind, poor, pitiful. But Jesus is the Amen. He's the truth. And he has their temperature. And he says to them, that is who you are. And in verse 18 of chapter 3 of Revelation says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. There's a kind of poverty that you have spiritually that you can't supply, but come to me. And, And white clothes to wear. 
You want to know what it is to be robed in white, washed and clean, so that you can cover over your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see because you are blind to the truth. The will of Christ for that church is that their poverty might be replaced by a spiritual wealth, that their nakedness and shame might be covered with robes of righteousness and good deeds, that their blindness might be healed so that they can see Christ and their world like it really is. And don't we need that? The, the, the spiritual poverty, the, the meh-ness of our faith to be reinvigorated by the thing that God gives to us, To understand our righteousness in Christ is not something we've merited ourselves, that we can't provide for ourselves, but we're entirely dependent on him. And so thoroughly grateful for that, that he is so beautiful in what he has done for us, that we might see what Christ has done to heal us, that we might see him clearly and our world. And so in chapter chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, buy from me gold. But how do you buy gold when you're broke? And Jesus knows that we're broke. He says so in verse 17. And not just that we're broke, but we're blind. And so how are you going to work if you're blind? Well, I guess you'd have to beg. But how do you beg if you're not just blind, but you're also naked? And so so exposed that you wouldn't want to leave the house. How do you buy gold and garments and salve when you're poor and blind and naked? How do you get the wealth of Christ and the power to be clothed in faith and the wisdom to see things like God does when your house is empty and you're too frightened and too ashamed to venture out? Jesus, in his loving rebuke, comes to a church and says, do you see the situation you are in and do you see the incredible provision that I'm bringing? I'm I'm here rebuking you and you notice... I'm rebuking you because I love you, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. How do you buy it? Well, you don't work for it. He says you listen. It's like the word to Hebrews. You pay careful attention attention that you won't forego what it is that you have heard. Look at verse 20. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. How beautiful is that? An invitation to the one who is calloused and hard-hearted and the door is slammed shut. To the one who is lukewarm, who's cooled off, who's just, I've got other things going on. There's a knock on the door. Is the one who's standing there. And inside are lukewarm believers who think they have need of nothing more of Christ. And Christ comes to his church. It's not to unbelievers that he's knocking on the door of their heart. He's knocking on the believer saying, you've cooled off. You've got all lukewarm. The self-sufficient, the complacent, the meh followers. And he's saying, do you hear me? Do you hear that beat on the door? Do you see the truth and the power? And do you see yourself and your independence? Do you see the sin of your lukewarm response to me? Well, open up. 
Open up. Because Jesus wants to join you in the dining room and spread a meal out for you and banquet. There's something joyous and loud and vibrant and exciting. Take, take all the do- locks off the doors and, and ask of the living Christ to come in and eat. It's a powerful reminder to the one who's drifted off course, to the one who looks and sees the precious thing that's slipped and it's gone and it's missing somewhere and that the water's just at a very low tide. It says, remember, listen. The response is a response of faith just to to accept and be reminded and hear afresh just how beautiful Jesus is. That if he's lost his colour and vibrancy, then pay careful attention. Repent, in fact. Be earnest. For here he is, standing at the door and knocking. And look at 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying there's, there's a victory There's an invitation to come and to sit down in the presence of God. Have you got ears? Are they kind of deft down a little? Well, the one who loves us brings to us a rebuke to his church and says, what's the temperature of your heart towards me? And would you open up your heart in repentance It's exactly what was on Keith Green's mind that Monday night when he wrote that song. And as he wrote that song, he was praying a prayer. And we're going to just finish this time now. And perhaps you want to pray alongside what Keith Green does. Will you pray with me? Monday night this week about midnight I wrote a letter to the Lord I didn't know where to mail it so I put it in my Bible and I asked him Lord you got to do something about my heart you know a lot of time's gone by since I met you and it's starting to harden up you know it's just kind of natural I want to have baby skin Lord skin like a baby on my heart. It's starting to get old and, and wrinkled and callous. It's not because anything I'm doing. It's because of a lot of things I'm not doing. And I stayed up till about two in the morning writing this song.
Give all the glory 